Good to see you. Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin reading in verse um, 9. And if you're able to stand, let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God and we'll have prayer. We thank God for His Word. We honor His Word. And uh, it's His message to us. Please look, if you would, in verse 9, Mark chapter 9 and verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain... As you remember from last week, they'd been on what we sometimes call the Mount of Transfiguration, a high mountain. A lot of people speculate it was Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in that region. Doesn't tell us that. But as they came down from the mountain, he charged them. And keep in mind, the only ones that are with him at that time are Peter, James, and John. He charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must come first? Elias is another way of spelling Elijah. Why say the scribes, they asked Jesus, why say the scribes that Elias must come first? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Now our message this morning is going to touch on several different things that are found in this passage and those surrounding this. But one thing we're going to deal with is a very interesting topic. And and by the way, that's the interesting thing and the good thing about just going through the Bible from chapter and chapter and verse by verse is you have to cover everything, not just the things you like the most, but everything's in there. And we're going to deal with this, this uh, prophecy concerning the coming of Elias or the coming of Elijah. And they ask about that. Why do the scribes say he must come first? So let's have prayer and ask God to bless as we get into the scripture today. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bless as we study it. Help us to, Lord, have open minds and hearts alert minds, and Lord, that we would be seeking for what you have for us. We are reminded of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels that it's in seeking goodly pearls that we find the pearl of great price, and so help us to be seeking for what you have for us today, and we'll trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to review, if I could quickly, uh, the events of the last week or so, not the last, not your last week or so, but the last week or so in this passage where Jesus and his disciples were. And the reason we're kind of examining this passage slowly is because much of this has directly to do with Jesus preparing his disciples for his death on the cross. He is getting them ready for something that they don't even understand. They can't wrap their mind around, and they're certainly not prepared for it. And really, this preparation begins in earnest in chapter 8, in verse 29, when 
Jesus asked the disciples, whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And, and, and then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter made this great confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now why? Because it's of utmost importance. If they don't, if they don't learn anything else in these three and a half years, they need to know for sure who Jesus is. And so he's driving that point home. And then in eight, chapter 8 and verse 31, he, he really lays out for them in detail for the first time what he's about to do. It says that in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He's, he's trying to get them to understand that he is going to die, and he's going to die very soon, in a matter of months. And of course, Peter didn't understand that, and Peter rebuked him and said, in essence, you know, we'll never let this happen. And then Jesus, in turn, rebuked Peter with strong words, get thee behind me, Satan. So this is all leading up to where we are today. And Jesus, of course, in the latter part of Mark chapter 8, he he really challenges them about the, con the cost, the, the uh, cost that's involved in following him. Last week we talked in chapter 9 and verse 2, if you're looking in your Bibles, where he took Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain apart, the Bible says, and he was transfigured before them. And along with him, there were these, th these two other men who came and made this earthly visit. And that was Moses and Elijah. And they were speaking to him, talking to Jesus. And again, a part of the preparation of the disciples, and that brings us to our text, where Jesus and these disciples now are walking back down to the lower country from the mountain, and he tells them in verse 9, keep these things private until I've risen from the dead. And we're not making this up. If you look there in Mark chapter 9, it tells us that they, didn't, uh, they still didn't thoroughly understand. Look in verse 10. They kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. They're still not getting it. And you might think, well, those guys are slow. I mean, what, why, what's so hard about this? But in reality, we all are kind of slow sometimes to really grasp the meaning of what God has for us. Amen. So one of the things that I want to... I wanna, spend a little time on again today is the, the intentional focus that Jesus is giving to the upcoming death on the cross. This, this topic is becoming of prime importance. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 8 and verse 31, he introduced this subject. It was the, the topic of discussion. We talked about this last week. The topic of the discussion between Jesus and Elijah and Moses was his death on the cross. That's, that's what they're focusing on. In chapter 9 and verse 9, we read it a moment ago. Again, he mentions this, tell no man what these things that you've seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. He mentions his impending death again. In chapter 9 and verse 12, we read this, where he speaks of Elijah coming and restoring things, and he said this, and... How it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. Now, there are at least four times in these few verses 
where Jesus brings up the cross, where he brings up his death on the cross. He says there in verse 12, and how it is written of the Son of Man. Now, what Jesus is doing in saying that, by the way, where would it, where would it have been written? There was only one place he could have been referring to, and that's the Old Testament. Amen. It was written in the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, you see references to what's about to happen. These men were Jews. They were familiar with the Old Testament. My wife and I just read Psalm 22 just recently again, reading through our Bible. It begins with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That psalm includes a reference uh, to the fact that his hands would be pierced. That psalm includes the fact that they would, they would part his garments. I mean, it's a, it's a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. It's written in the Old Testament. Most of you know the 53rd psalm, things about the 53rd chapter, excuse me, of Isaiah. Where Isaiah wrote about this, he'll be wounded for our transgressions, he'll be bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace will be upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray, and he hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All these Old Testament passages talk about what's about to happen. That's why he said in verse 12, it is written of me. There in many other places. He is driving home the reality of his death on the cross. Sometimes we read this because we have so much background, we have so much understanding, we've heard the story so much, we sort of take it for granted. But these men who had lived with him for three and a half years still didn't get it. Jesus wants to make sure they get it. This matter of preaching the cross for these apostles, Peter, James, and John, and others, and for the churches of the New Testament era would be, become their primary message, the message of the cross. But right now they're finding it difficult. They're finding it unacceptable. They're struggling with this part of the story of Jesus. I was thinking about this this week in preparing for this, this lesson, and I was thinking about verse 7. If you look with me there in Mark chapter 7, when they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is an audible voice speaking to them. This is God speaking to them. Mark chapter 9 and verse 7. This is God speaking to them from this cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. It's God the Father, in a very unusual setting, says to these disciples, Listen to what my Son is saying. Pay attention to Him. He's trying to tell you something that's vitally important. And I believe it's about the cross. The cross is essential. The cross is unavoidable. The cross is not optional. The cross is the centerpiece of the entire narrative of the Scripture. It's the cross. All the Old Testament sacrifices... All the feasts that they observed, all the holy days, even the design and the furniture of the tabernacle and the temple, all pointed to the cross. When Jesus was asked to explain, as we saw there in verse 12, the reason the scribes said Elias must come first, he brought up his own suffering. You know, I think, um, I don't know about you, but I've thought about this a lot, and I've wondered about why would... Why would Jesus put a gag order on these disciples? 
and say, don't tell anybody about this until after I'm risen from the dead. And I think one reason is because they couldn't speak intelligently about it because they still didn't understand it. They still didn't fully grasp the significance of his death. It wasn't that they didn't believe in resurrection. They had raised people from the dead. They had seen people raised from the dead, but the Messiah they didn't expect to die and rise from the dead. You know, this ought to me, and that's why I'm emphasizing this, it ought to underscore in our personal lives, in our minds, in our ministries, that our preaching, our teaching, our music ought to all point to the centrality of the cross. There's no gospel without the cross. There's no hope without the cross. There's no grace, as we heard sung about this morning. There's no grace. There's no life without the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So if their understanding, if these men, Peter, James, and John, if their understanding was incomplete about the cross, their message would be incomplete. Same with us. The primary message of the Gospels, and I, we, rec- we respect this in our church, but the primary message of the Gospel is not just about a great instructor. It's not just about a healer of diseases. It's the message of the crucified Savior. Too much preaching today is on self-improvement. And too little on the cross. So clearly, clearly in this In this window of time, in this week or so, Jesus is putting the spotlight on the cross. And then in verse 11, they ask him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must come first? Now, we're going to take a few moments this morning and look at a few Old Testament passages and New Testament passages to kind of set some background from this. Why, why do the scribes, just look at the question in verse 11, why say the scribes that Elias must come first? And when they say must come first, they're meaning must come before the Messiah. Why do the scribes say that Elijah, who was an Old Testament prophet, right? Why would they say that Elijah must come first? Well, let's just... Let's look backwards for a moment. Hold your place there in Mark chapter 9 and go to the last book of the Old Testament. Should be easy enough to find. The book of Malachi. Because Malachi talks about this. The last book of our Old Testament, perhaps written as the last book, but maybe not, but at least in our Bible, the last book of the Old Testament written about 450 to 500 years before Jesus was born. That would begin after the closing of the Old Testament writings, what is sometimes called the silent years. God has been speaking through His prophets. God has been speaking to His people. But from that time until the coming of John the Baptist, God would say nothing. So this is important. It's one of the last things that God recorded for us before the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, if you'd look there with me please, verse 1, it says this. 
Behold, I will send my messenger. I have those two words underlined in my Bible, my messenger. And he, the messenger that I send, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a promise, another promise, one of many promises about the coming of the Messiah. He's going to come. And it says, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. But he also said, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way before the Lord. And then if you look in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6, the last two verses of the Old Testament, another reference. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now at this time, Elijah's been dead for a long time. Malachi writes in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I'm going to send Elijah before that. That's why the scribes say, Why does it say that Elias must come first? Because verse 5 says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So Elijah must come before the coming of the Lord. Now we... You know, I don't know why, you may know, but I don't know why exactly this question came up. They're coming down off the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and Peter, James, and John. They've left that holy place. And why do they even bring up, why why do they bring up this question? Why say the scribe that Elias must come first? Well, part of it might have been triggered by the fact that Elijah was on the, remember he showed up with Moses there in the Transfiguration. And they asked this question. Now let's go back, if we could, uh, to Mark chapter 9 for a moment. And then we're going to go to another New Testament passage. But in Mark chapter 9, after they asked the question, verse 11, in verse 12, Jesus answered and said this, Elias verily cometh first. He is coming first and restoreth all things. Mark chapter 9 and verse 12. And, he, and, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. But I say unto you in verse 13 that Elias is indeed come. He said he's going to come, but he's already come. Elias is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed as it is written of him. So Jesus said that Elias is going to come, and by the way, I believe he will come again, Elijah. I believe he's one of the two prophets in Revelation chapter 11. There'll be two witnesses, the Bible says, two, two prophets. This is during the great tribulation. And two men, it doesn't tell who they are, I believe one of them was Elijah, and they're going to preach for three and a half years during the greatest tribulation this world has ever seen. And they're going to die. And the Bible says that the people and nations of the world will rejoice 
because this is what it says in Revelation 11, because of the way these two witnesses or prophets tormented them. They were tormented by the message, the preaching of these two prophets in Revelation. So they're going to be killed and the whole world, and of course it's possible now in the day of technology that the whole world can see them laying, murdered, and rejoicing. Worldwide party. But three and a half days later, the breath of God comes into those two prophets. And God raises them from the dead and they ascend back to heaven. You say, I'd like to see that. Well, if we see it, it'll be from the other side if we're saved. So Elias will come again. I believe he's one of those who will come. But Jesus also said he is come. And that's what I want to look at just briefly. But we have to look at some passage in the scripture to see that. Go first of all to the right to the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1. God visits through an angel. God visits a man by the name of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth and said to them, you're going to have a child and you're going to call his name John. We know him as John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, look with me if you would please in verse 13. The angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Look down in verse 16, it says, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, talking about John the Baptist, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elias or Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Those are the very words used in Malachi 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To do what? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John the Baptist, he says, would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah. To do what Malachi said the forerunner would do, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Go with me if you would please to Matthew chapter 11. And I know each one of you would like for us to stay longer in these passages, but we, we just want to kind of use these as references, witnesses to what Jesus said. When Jesus said, Elias will come, but he has already come. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 7, Jesus is teaching about John the Baptist. I'll only read a few of the verses. Matthew eleven seven. 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitude concerning John, John the Baptist, what went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Talking about John the Baptist. Verse 9, what went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Look in verse 10. But this is he, Jesus said, talking about John the Baptist. But this is he of whom it is written... Behold, I send thy messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now, it may not be this way in your Bible, but in my Bible, I have a center column reference. And when it says there in verse 10, this is he of whom it is written, there's a little letter, T, maybe different in your Bible. And over in the margin, it says Malachi 3.1. Jesus said, this is who Malachi was talking about. 
my messenger that I'd send before. Who is this messenger? His name is John the Baptist. Verse 14 it says, And if you will receive it, this is Elias. Who's he talking about? John the Baptist. Jesus said, If you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. And he said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. You're in Matthew 11. Go to the right a few pages to Matthew 17. In Matthew chapter 17, this is a parallel passage having to do with the transfiguration. The same thing we're studying about in Mark chapter 9. But in Matthew 17, in verse 2, it says he was transfigured. And then Matthew 17 and verse 10, here's the same question. His disciples ask him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? Why did they say that? Verse 11, Jesus said, or answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall come first and restore all things, but I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not. They didn't recognize him. They rejected John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, he was murdered. Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of him. Now notice this in verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. <laughs> it's pretty clear, isn't it? When Jesus said, when the, the scribes are saying that Elias must come first, and Jesus said, he is come. He's already come. They just didn't understand it. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. He came in the manner of Elijah. He came like Elijah. They both came out of isolation in the wilderness. They both came as preachers of repentance. They both came to preach and prepare people. Now, I'm going to go back to Mark chapter 9, and we'll finish things up there. But in Mark chapter 9, I'll go back to the question in verse 11. They ask him, saying, why, say the scribes, that Elias must come first. And that why is a question for me because Jesus, according to Matthew 17, at this point, Jesus made sure they understood that John the Baptist was this Elias that must come first. Well, one of the reasons they say that Elijah must come first is because it's a prophecy from the scripture. By the way, the scribes are like experts in the law. They're like secretaries or clerks or recorders. They meticulously record things from the scriptures. And they were renowned for their knowledge of the Old Testament. That's why they knew that before Messiah came, Elijah must come. The scribes are mentioned 60 times in the New Testament. Their view of Jesus was not always positive. As a matter of fact, it was nearly always, if not always, negative. They didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, when Jesus gave the disciples this first real clear view of the cross, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and who? The scribes. They weren't fond of Jesus. In Matthew 21, I'm talking about the scribes. It says, when the chief priests and scribes saw, this is a quote, saw the wonderful things that he did, they were sore displeased. Isn't that something? They're the scribes. They criticized Jesus. They criticized him for eating with sinners. They're the ones that said that he cast out devils by Beelzebub. 
Look in Mark chapter, turn quickly to Mark chapter 14 in just one verse, the very first verse. Another clear indication of where the scribes stood. Mark 14, one after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, Mark 14, one. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. They called for his execution. Those are the scribes. They were wrong about Jesus. But they knew this. They knew that preceding the Messiah, Elias must come. And in this passage, um, it makes me wonder this. Why would they say, why would they be saying that the scribes The scribes are saying that Elias must come first. If Jesus is the Messiah, then what about the forerunner? And you know what I'm thinking? And this is not clearly taught in the Bible. It's just my speculation or my uh, wondering out loud, I guess. I wonder if they didn't use that. They rejected Jesus. They rejected John the Baptist. They rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And I wonder if they're not using this as a justification for denying that Jesus was the Messiah because they said he can't be the Messiah because Elijah hasn't come. The disciples asked Jesus, why do these scribes keep saying that Elias must come first? And I wonder if it's not because they they did not want to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and therefore they justified it by saying, Elias has not come. How could Jesus be the Messiah if Elijah hadn't come? These, like the Pharisees, like the other religious leaders, like the priests, they didn't receive Jesus. Now think about this and we're going to close. These people knew a lot about the Bible, but they were wrong in many ways. They knew their prophecy. They knew about things about the Messiah. They knew that Messiah would not come until Elijah or Elias had come. It's sad when you think about it, to me, that these people knew so much about the Bible, and yet they were lost. They were lost. Unless something happened in their life, they died and went to hell. They, knew, they heard Jesus teach. They knew things about the Old Testament. They knew things about the law. And yet they were lost. You know, if if we lived in the New Testament era, in the time of the first century, if we lived during the life of Christ on earth, we would hear a lot of truth. We would would see many evidences that he, He is and was what He said He would be. His miracles would testify to his identity. The message that he preached, all the fulfilled prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you, were, if you or I were in those crowds, if we were there when he fed the 5,000, if we were there when miracles were occurring... And we had open minds and open hearts. There's no reason we could not come to the conclusion that Jesus really is the Messiah. And yet these people, 
these scribes refused to accept him as who he was. You say, how do you explain that? I'm not sure I can fully explain it, but I know this. For a person who does not want to believe, there will always be a reason or excuse not to believe. With all the undeniable evidence, the miraculous birth of Jesus, the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, the miracles He performed, with all of these things, walking on the water, raising people from the dead, all these things, reading the minds and hearts of people, all these things. And yet, their answer was, Elias has not yet come. He can't be the Messiah. And I just want to say to you today, don't make the same mistake these people made. Jesus did come. He did die on the cross for your sins. He did raise from the dead. He does give eternal life to all that receive Him. And there may be something about Him that you don't understand. There may be things about Him you can't quite figure out. But don't let the one or two things that you struggle with keep you from the most important thing, which is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If that's you here, you're here today and you're not saved, you don't know for sure you're saved, don't make the same mistake the scribes made. He can't be the Messiah. Elias had to come. Elias did come. They just didn't recognize him. And you may think, well, you hear all this nonsense in our world, you know. If God was good, why does this happen? Why can't I understand this? You know, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. How people struggle sometimes with how evil people seem to get away with stuff. All that stuff, don't let all that stuff be a delusion to you. Don't let all that stuff sidetrack you. Believe what you know to be true about the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. He did die on the cross for your sins. He did raise on the third day. And He saves everyone who will come to Him with faith and believe on Jesus Christ. And this, as positive as news as that is, here's the other side of the coin. Like the scribes, if you don't receive Him, if you don't believe on Him, if you don't put your faith and trust in Him, you have no hope of salvation or eternal life. Zero. Because He is the way. Right? So if you're today and you don't know Him, come to Him. Come to Him by faith. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I just don't know how it's all going to work. Or how. You don't have to know all that. Yes. Do you think we knew that? I mean, when I got saved, did you think I'd be standing here one Sunday with my hands like this, pleading with people to come to Jesus? I didn't know anything. All I knew was I needed a Savior. Amen. Leave the rest to God. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen.